About 10 years ago, I came across one of those interesting tidbits. Uh, probably means a lot to pastors, um, but I'm thinking as I get ready to say it, it's probably not going to mean squat to any of you. Um, but I'm preaching, you're not, so here it is. Well, first let me build up to it with even more trivia that I'm sure is going to captivate your minds as though you see me as Walt Disney himself. Here it is. As it turns out, over 20,000 pastors leave the ministry every single year. Did you know that? It's a little bit over 20,000, about 20,400 last check, and that's about 10 years old. It's worse now. Leave the ministry every single year. That's over 1,700 pastors every single month saying, I'm done with this. I'm leaving the ministry. Some of you are like, is this supposed to be inspirational, Pastor? You left the ministry. No, I didn't. I just changed locations. That's completely different. By an overwhelming majority, those who leave the Lord's work, check this out, do so on a Monday. By an overwhelming majority, it's not like there's, you know, 10% that do so on a Monday. Most of them that are going to decide, I'm not going to do this anymore, decide on a Monday. Now, I can see you're fascinated with that, first of all, but maybe you'll be fascinated with this little tidbit. Uh, they leave because maybe things aren't going good in the church. They leave because there's friction. They leave because they just can't seem to get the vision across. They leave you know, because of bad things. That makes sense, right? But about half of them leave and decide to give it up on a Monday because things are going great. I mean, they might have had just a great victory. Might have had just a great harvest. And they leave. They leave. What do they know that maybe others don't? Why, the, the bad thing I can understand, people leave them when there's, when there's things just aren't going right. That makes kind of sense, right? By the way, I used to be a teacher. I told you that. There's Mark Brown, my student. Teachers like interaction. I like interaction. So I'm going to ask you guys questions, and if you don't answer, I'll figure out a way to embarrass you. Well, despair after victory is exactly what happens to the Jews in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. So if you brought your Bibles, and I hope you do every single week, we usually use the English Standard Version, go ahead and turn to the book of Nehemiah and turn to chapter 5. See, what we have right here is the Jews... Everything's going great. They're trying to rebuild the wall so that they have defenses around Jerusalem so that they can worship in freedom, so that their enemies don't taunt them, so that they don't actually mug them and rob them and make them too scared to worship. And they've started doing this, and you've been with us in the last few weeks. You can see that the wall project's going great. It's a movement. It's something that hasn't been able to happen for 140 years, but in a matter of a couple weeks, the wall's going up. It's halfway done. It couldn't be going better, but they're about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You ever been in a situation like that? There's really nothing here that's going wrong. In fact, things have simmered down a little bit. The external opposition has been beaten back for the time being. It's going to kind of simmer back up. Uh, we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. But for right now, it's almost gone. But instead of being thrilled about it, people are discouraged. Instead of being thrilled about it, people are depressed. So as we come to chapter 5, the same community is starting to self-destruct because of some of the festering grievances, some of the things that have been in the body that Nehemiah just didn't know about. I guess he didn't see it. The workers now face a new enemy who's harder to defeat, gang, I promise you, by far than the enemies that are out there, than the previous ones that they've been facing. And the timing could not have been worse because the walls, like I said, are halfway done. So here's what Nehemiah has to do. He's thrilled with the project. He's really loving it. He's in his niche. He's doing something he didn't think he could do very well. But now he's got to take his construction hard hat off, put his blueprints aside, and he's got to come down from the wall 
and deal with the walls that are being built inside, the spiritual, emotional, and physical walls that are being built between brothers and sisters and families and clans and businesses, something he didn't count on. Because if he doesn't deal with it quick, the whole project's going to grind to a halt, and it may even not happen at all. Might have half a wall and have to walk away from this thing. So their external enemies helped to rally the people for this project in the first point. They were being made fun of. They were being ridiculed. They were being physically abused and threatened and actually sometimes actually physically hurt. That rallied the people to do something about it. And they're doing something about it. And the enemies are scared. And they're backing off while they got pretty good at anticipating the enemy's next move. And we saw that last week. They completely overlooked the possibility of the enemy within their own ranks. And we do that a lot. We look at our, our own families, we'll look at churches, and we think, well, nothing could happen inside the church. I mean, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. The real enemy's always out there, and the real enemy should be out there. But gang, I promise you, Satan defeats churches a whole lot more from within than he does from without. A whole lot more. I'm told that when a group of thoroughbred horses face an enemy attack, they stand in a circle facing each other, and with their back legs, they kick out at the foe. Isn't that interesting? I was fascinated by that. You guys awake? Check this out. On the other hand, donkeys do just the opposite. They make a circle and they face the threat while using their hind legs to kick at each other. Can you believe that? Aren't they stupid? What a bunch of dumbasses, right? <laughs> okay, it's in there. It's a biblical word. Don't get me on that. Listen, gang, this is important for you and me, because the same obstacles that got Nehemiah and just about drew this whole project, this great project to a halt, are the same obstacles today. I mean, Satan's not dumb. It's actually in your own strength pretty foolish to go up against Satan by yourself. It's foolish. You should not be chasing after the devil to prove, in the Lord's name, I'm going to chase after you. Don't do that. He's bigger and badder than you, and he can beat you up and take everything away if God doesn't intervene. It's not equal between Satan and God but it's not close between you and Satan. So don't take him on in your own strength. It's important because the same obstacles are there. What is wild about Satan is he doesn't change his tactics very much. He uses two or three or four or five, you know, just a handful of things that he used on Adam and Eve and that he uses in, in people that are worshiping in the temple in the Old Testament and that he used in the early church and he still uses them today. And some of you might be going, so if he's that dumb, how come we don't catch on? Well, here's the deal. They work. These tactics work, and if it works, why would you change it? If it ain't broke, why fix it? And so Satan's, I think Satan's looking at us, and we look at that and go, man, he's not very sharp, he's pretty dumb. He's looking at us and going, they're really dumb. I'm going to just keep using the same thing and enjoying them falling in the same traps because they don't catch on. There's some traps that we'll see here that are common, even in the church today, and we'll be able to pick them out. For Nehemiah and the wall workers, it was a shortage of food that contributed to the people's discouragement. If you think about it, it's a pretty powerful contributor, right, to people being discouraged. Look at what's happening with the victims of Hurricane Sandy. Um, in a matter of days, depression, discouragement, anxiety, anger, even violence have set in because a lot of the people are hungry. Well, they can't get food right now. Some contributing factors to depression, some contributing factors to discouragement take a while. Hunger's not one of them, Right? Hunger can make you discouraged. If you're hungry, how many of you get, how many of you like me? If you miss one meal, you're grumpy. You're discouraged. That's me. I'm like a hobbit. I need breakfast, second breakfast, 11 C's, all these different meals, or I'm going to get grumpy. Well, I mean, that's why I joined the MacGyvers group. Are they here? Can I make fun of the MacGyvers? Are they? 
because they serve food all the time. I love that. It's the real, we don't talk about Jesus or anything. We just eat. That's not true. We, we, we eat and we watch Once Upon a Time and try to find Jesus in the storyline. We do all of that. Uh, no, it's a very, 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 very good group. We don't have time for that. What's, uh, I want you guys to start with verse 1. Let me read the first maybe five verses for you. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives. I find it interesting that he throws that in against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we're many. So let us get grain that we might be able to eat and keep alive. They could barely eat. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of a famine. So they're, they're basically leveraging the farm uh, just so they can get enough food on the table. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. They're saying, we're no different than you. And our children are the same as your children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to do anything about it, to help it. For other men have our fields and other men have our vineyards. So they feel trapped and discouragement is really setting in here. From this we can pull out at least three different things that the Jews were going through that were contributing to an inward breakdown that just about wiped the project out. Now, keep your eye on them because we're going to go over them several times. I want you to get it because the same things that wipe out churches. It's obvious from these verses that the work on the wall was taking its toll on the workers. It's a great project. It's going to be good for them, but for some reason, they're halfway done. It's only been a few weeks, and they're tired of it. Here's why. They're running out of food. And money, they're running out of money, money's scarce, and many had already mortgaged their farms and sold their children into slavery, indentured slavery, basically, just to pay their taxes to have money to buy food. They have big families. And who lets Nehemiah know this? The women's ministry. They're the ones that tell Nehemiah about this. He reads it on the woman's Facebook page. That's where he gets this. They get very, very worked up. Now, I'm going to go into some territory here that's probably foolish for me to go into. I'm going to tell you what Scripture says here. I thought I had a water hidden here. I do not. Where is my water hidden? Oh, where I put it. <laughs> wow. That's good that I had a moment to think about what I'm about to say about the ladies here because it's a make it or break it statement, I think, coming up here. But we have godly ladies in this church, so I'm sure they'll hear me out on this one. Ladies, where are you? Raise your hands. Let me see. <laughs> Can I be brutally honest for just a moment? When have you known me not to? Um, in fact, I'm scared of you, so I'm going to use Mark Driscoll's words instead here, all right, on this passage. He says, some women have the tendency to freak out. Okay, so far, so good. Some women have the tendency to freak out over anything. Some women have the tendency to, to like drama. Am I getting warmer? And if there's not enough drama in their lives, I don't know, maybe create it where it doesn't exist. Now listen, you don't need to get upset if you're sitting here going, he's not being very nice to ladies. If that's not you, then don't worry about it. If it is you, then Pete wrote this part. So I want you to, <laughs> Pete MacGyver at impactchurch.com. I would agree with Mark on this thing. We will both say, don't do that. Don't create drama. Don't freak out for just no reason. Why? Because then Though you're women, you can develop the same reputation as a man, a boy really, the boy who cried wolf. 
If you freak out about everything, what happens when something real serious is happening in the church? What happens when something real serious is happening in your family and you're known to freak out all the time? What ha- I mean, you can get shot for that matter. Hey, you know so-and-so got shot? Ah, I wouldn't take it serious. They're always freaking out. And people don't help you. People don't take you seriously. But the women who cried out here apparently weren't like that. They didn't cry out all the time. But now they're crying out. Now, I want you to know what Scripture says to the ladies, what Paul said. That's going to be a sobering thought. 1 Timothy 3.11. In the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers. And some of your Bibles it says women should not gossip, but be tempered and trustworthy in everything. Some of you are like, well, that could be said about men too. True, it could, but it wasn't. It wasn't said about men here. 1 Timothy 2.13. And it follows up this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Man, it's quiet in here. And it's hot and I'm sweating. What is, is it just me? Okay, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And I know you're looking at here and go, Pastor, I don't get, where was that in the Bible? I just told you the reference. But I don't get it. Adam obviously sinned. Well, he did. But Paul's saying that the reason the woman sinned is she was deceived. She was tricked. And Adam sinned too, but he wasn't tricked. He was just stupid. (laughs) So he had that going for him. I mean, you think about it. If you look back in Genesis 3 and you see what happened, Eve was talking to the serpent. Satan had entered the serpent, and, and Satan says, you know, you can't eat of that one tree. God's holding out on you. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil because here's the deal. It tastes better than any of the fruits you can eat. And God knows that if you do eat it, you'll be like him. I mean, I know things are great here, but they could be even better. And what kind of God would hold out and not want you to have the best? So as he's painting this picture, Eve's thinking, that's right. I mean, he is holding on him, and and she's being deceived, and yet Adam wasn't deceived. Now, I know Paul says this, and I have it. It's kind of hard for me to follow that Adam wasn't deceived, because guess where Adam is? Standing right next to Eve. So I I guess he wasn't deceived. I think he was just in a coma or something. He's just standing there, whatever the lady says to do, and so she grabbed it. She's going through this whole thing, and he's just standing there, letting it happen. So her sin was that she was deceived. His sin is that he abdicated leadership. He just stood there and let her lead and go through the whole process, and he switched everything that the Lord had in order, in reverse order. So that's how the first sin entered. And I think what Paul's trying to say is, look out, ladies, for this is the tactic that Satan will use on you. He's not a chauvinist. Some people say the Paul is he's not at all. He's just saying you don't want Satan to eat your lunch. Ladies, here's how he works with you. Typically, men, here's how he works with you. Typically, isn't saying that women can't minister. Isn't saying women can't teach, can't be used. It is saying that Satan's approach to getting women to sin is different, usually, than the approach he uses on men. That's all. Did we get through that okay? Good. These are good women here. These women freak out in this text. But they're freaking out for a, a reason. There's abuse going on here. It's incredibly unfair. People are being sold into slavery. And, and what's wrong with this picture? Well, there's not. There's maybe tens of thousands of Jews that are there around Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but there aren't hundreds of thousands of millions. Why? Because where are they? They're in captivity still for dozens and dozens of years. But guess what? Some of them have been coming back over the last few decades. You know how they got some of them to come back? They'd get money, and they would buy them out of slavery. 
they would buy them out of the bondage that we're in, and then the Babylonians or then the uh, Assyrians or however they're going down throughout the generations would let them go. Give us enough money, and they won't be a slave anymore, and they can come back home. And yet they come back home, and the Jews are saying, this is so wrong, we want them to come home. And then when they come back home, they do it to each other. They do the very same thing that drove them crazy. They raise money to get them free, and then they come here and they enslave them again. And the women were right to cry out to this. It's completely unfair. It's completely wrong. To make matters worse, Nehemiah discovered that some of the nobles and city officials were actually taking advantage of the situation to make a profit. They're seeing it go on, and they're encouraging people to do this. So everyone's pulled in different directions and had different concerns of their own, and no one was very concerned about the vision anymore. So now you can see why the wall uh, building project is in jeopardy. It may not get any further than what it's gotten now. The external threats have faded a bit, but now if they're not careful, they could lose everything from the enemy within. And gang, it's not the government. I know right now, you know, about two weeks ago, we're hearing a lot of people say, well, it's the Republicans. Well, it's the Democrats. Well, we need this president. Well, we need that. That's what's wrong with the church. That's what's wrong with Christianity. No. It's not the government. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not even global warming. It's church people. It's church people. Even Jesus dealt with this. Who was Jesus' biggest opponent? Yeah, some of you are like the Pharisees, but that's wrong. I said opponent, not opponents, plural. Who was his biggest, biggest opponent? One, one guy. Who would you say the worst? Judas. And what was Judas? An outsider? He's an insider. Can't get much closer than the twelve. And Jesus even picked him knowing this. But his biggest opponent, his biggest opposition was a guy very, very close to him. Lived with him, learned from him, was loved on by Jesus for three years, and yet hated him. Acts 20, Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus and the leaders about a real problem that's developing in the early church, but it's going to get worse. He's saying there's big problems to come. As you, you think you've faced it now with persecution on the outside? Guess what's coming? He says the real issue will come from those within the church, not those outside the church. It's always been this way. It probably always will be that way. He says as soon as I leave, I mean, Paul was sometimes a little bit arrogant. But he says as soon as I leave, it's all going to break loose. Well, what do you mean? What's going to happen? Well, wolves will enter the flock. And you won't be able to tell they're wolves because they'll zip up in sheep clothing. And they'll start taking leadership, and they will teach. And it'll sound good, but it'll be a little bit off. And they'll rip the church to shreds, and that'll be the biggest threat of the church. Please watch out for it because if you're not expecting it, and you're not anticipating, you're not aware, tear the church apart. That's what Paul says. And it's been, and you might say, well, Ephesus must have been a pretty messed up church. Well, I checked, and apparently had the same message for the church at Corinth, Galatia, Philippi, Ephesus, Rome, Thessalonica, and everywhere else there was a church. Everywhere else. And what was the real issue? We're gonna, I told you we're going to have to see three issues here, and, um, but they're really, good, they're really kind of Band-Aid issues. The real problem is going to be that these people, I want you to think about this because it's not obvious, but the real problem is that these people have allowed another God to creep into their midst, and they're not overtly worshiping this God, but they're covertly worshiping him 24-7. And they're not even really aware of it. I think the nobles were aware of it. What do you think that God is? What do you think that God was? Do we have any Red Bull for the crowd? Because 
wow. They're just, that God gang is money. That God is money. The things they're doing are making them a lot of money, and they probably wouldn't say, we're not worshiping it. We're just trying to make money, and maybe some of the things are shady, but we'll clean up our act. We don't worship money. They absolutely do. It's their God. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about money and wealth and finances and such. And some of you are going, oh, I, I, unbelievable with pastors. How do they do this? They're preaching and they shift towards money. I'm not going to actually teach that much on money today. This is a two-part thing in chapter, chapter uh, 5. We're going to get to that next week. So I'm, gonna, I'm gone. It's Thanksgiving. That's cool. I want you to get the podcast next week and listen to it. Here's the deal. Money is talked about in the Bible over 800 times. Did you know that 25% of the time that Jesus opened his mouth to teach, it was about money? It was about our stuff? And so if he taught so much, he taught more on that one subject than any other subject, and many big subjects combined, because he knows that's an easy default God for most of us, even when we don't think we're worshiping that. Really, the topic is the enemy within, but I'll cut to the chase for everyone and just tell you that it's worshiping money over God that seems to be the root of most of the internal strife the people within Jerusalem are facing, exchanging gods. But I think before we can unpack that this week or even next week, some of you need to get past the shock that church can be a place of division. Actually, it occurs to me the large number of you probably aren't shocked by that. You probably realize that happens. A lot of time, and in a lot of churches, the reason that Satan pulls this off so easily, though, gang, is because we just convince ourselves, I don't know, lie to ourselves, blind ourselves, that it just can't happen. We're one big, happy family. I've done this in my, in my life. Just thought, well, the churches can't possibly be divided. We're good Christian people. We all want to serve the same God. Nobody would let that happen. It's not that we want it to. So it's an easy trap to fall into. So we're so busy looking at politicians and laws and other countries and persecution and what's coming down the pike and whether we'll lose certain freedoms that we don't even realize the worst kind of opposition a church will ever face, any church, comes from within. So Christians need to wise up, especially in America, because the greatest enemy to the church, universal, local, and even right here, is ourselves, us. The greatest threat to rebuilding the wall here is now surfacing in chapter 5. It's not Sambalat, it's not Tobiah that we've been talking about, it's not the Ammonites, not the Arabians, it's their fellow Jews. And though it's not unusual, quite common in fact, they are completely caught off guard. Here's one of the cool things about Nehemiah's leadership. He came into this thing and he anticipated, if you were here, how many of you guys were here last week? All right, then you saw and we learned last week that one of the greatest things about his leadership is as though he had had a prophecy because he could see down the road. He's okay, I think the enemies are going to do this. They may do this. It's like every move they made, he was a step ahead of them. But this is the one thing where Nehemiah is going to have to take his leadership skills and rely on God and get on his knees and pray because he wasn't ready for this. Leaders usually aren't. Nehemiah is completely caught off guard. You'll see him lose his temper. You'll see him completely explode. You'll see him run in all kinds of directions until he stops and gets it together because he thinks the whole thing's in jeopardy. Caught off guard. Why? Because we don't expect to get stabbed in the back on our way out the front door of our own house, right? So don't expect that. We don't expect a two-by-four in the back of our head two seconds after we pass the greeters at church, right? Hello, welcome to Impact Church. We exist to make an impact for Jesus and mark the body. Wham, you're first. All right, we don't, we don't expect that at church. And, and people maybe don't do this on purpose, but when it happens, that's why Satan just does this so easily because we're so gullible. 
Watch this. Some of you are saying, well, then why should I bother even going to church if this is the case, Pastor Rob? Because God's people are also the source of the greatest love, the greatest grace, the greatest forgiveness, sacrifice, and restoration on the planet. The greatest source. This is why Jesus said about his church that the gates of hell will not prevail. It's an unstoppable force when it's healthy. When it's healthy. It's an unstoppable force. And when the church is unhealthy, it's tough to beat as the most destructive force on earth. It can be both. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Al Gore was debating George Bush. You guys remember that? It's kind of a sleeper. It's not that fun of a debate. One of the things Al, Al Gore said was something about locking his heart away in a lockbox. You guys remember that? Among the many otherwise pithy things that he said. Uh, and you look at that and he says, well, I'm just going to protect it. You've got to lock your heart away in a lockbox. Well, that'll maybe protect it, but you also can't love. So that's really a gamble. And some of you have lived your life like that. Well, I've been hurt by Christians. I've been hurt in the church. I'm not going to go to church anymore. Well, I'm giving impact to, you know, and you maybe sit back with your arms folded and go and prove that this is a good place, prove that this is legit. Well, that's like locking your heart away. The thing is, this is the best place to, be, to receive God's grace and forgiveness and to see the Holy Spirit move, but there's potential. How, how can you experience love, though, when you lock your heart away? You got to take a risk. And because Satan and God are both influencing, it could go either way, unless you center the church around Jesus Christ. So what's the answer, Pastor? Find a biblically-centered church, a Christ-centered church that's all about Jesus, where they take Satan seriously, but they don't go looking for him and chasing after him. And go there and dive in with everything you've got. Dive in with everything you've got. And, and I don't say this pridefully, I say this factually. I really believe it. Impact is such a place. It really is. More than anything else, this is what I hear you all say about this church. We're in our seventh week, and I hear this every single week, and I love it. I hope I never stop hearing it. I hear the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. I walked in. I was here 10 minutes. I could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. I never want to lose that. Never want to lose that. People comment in droves about this. God's among the people. God is in the worship. We don't have a lot of the bells and whistles. We're in a gym in metal chairs with handheld mics and music stands as pulpits. And yet God is in this place. God is not in the bells and whistles. God is in his people. God's not in a building. God is in his people. All right, here's the good news this morning. You ready for some good news? Everyone can prevent the enemy from within, from destroying God's work, by anticipating Satan's three-part discouragement plan. We're going to go over this thing, you guys are going to know it, and then it should never, forevermore, be a problem. As long as the launch team knows it, it'll always be in our DNA. Here's one, here, and I guarantee you haven't heard these before, that's why they're a problem. Number one, and you can write these down, note takers, too many people. That's, you don't want any more? Should we leave? No, too many people is a potential problem, though. Verse 2, look at it. There's a little three-word phrase in there. It says, we are many. It says, we are many. Nehemiah was a great visionary. He painted a great picture of how life could be if they only got the wall rebuilt, and the people got fired up because he's a great visionary and a great speaker, and so they came in droves into the city to help with this project. But the problem is there's a population explosion. 
not only the people within the city get involved, but the Jews that lived around the city in a rural areas, they all came, and it was just too many all at once. When Nehemiah and his entourage showed up, thousands of people flooded the city. Population explosion. And the food supply was stretched to the absolute limit. Watch this. When God moves, gang, it's attractive. When God moves, it's attractive. And it will grow. Acts 2, 46. Here's the first church. Through 47. Day by day, people were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Lost people were even favoring them. And the Lord added to their number. That's a help. When a church is healthy, he's going to add. It's going to grow. Added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is the very first church. It grew fast. It was exciting. God was in their midst. Anybody know what the average size of a church is in America? That's close. It's a little more than that. It's not quite 50. It's 75. 75 people, average church. 90% of church plants don't make it. Hey, Pastor Rob, you said this was the encouraging part, right? Well, it gets better. Out of the 10% that do make it, they will never get to 200, men, women, and children. And then only 2% of them will make it. We'll get past that. Churches that have gone from a handful of people in a living room to nearly 307 weeks are one that I know of. One that I know of. So this is happening fast. So the first phase or scenario potential that things could go bad if we're not aware, we have it. Too many people too fast. Not too many, but a lot. So we got to know what to do in this. Now listen, gang, we've had our share of opposition at Impact Church from without. And I think sometimes we're focused on that. And I don't want us to be like these people and just go, well, nothing could possibly happen from within. I don't think anything could with this group. I mean, really the neatest, most godly group I have ever had the privilege of working with. But Satan can still sneak in. All he needs is a tiny little foothold to get in. We're not going to let him. But he's going to try. So some of us think, well, you know, we've kind of dealt with the opposition. That's kind of fading in Impact Church, so I'm sure Satan will just run away. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think he wants Impact Church to get off the ground. Too late for that. So probably he's going to try other tactics. So we need to protect what we're building. Anyone ever play Jenga? Want to play? Got some Jenga set up. And... uh, I like Jenga. get to build something. I like building things. But it's hard to build things alone. It's just hard. I'm going to do it anyway. Got this thing going here. It's very exciting. And so I am working out of the room. Helping people know that Jews are the hero. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what? <wow. laughs> and so, look, this is why I'm so happy. Help me to help me with Jenga. So, how would you approach this? How would you play Jenga? How would you play it wrong? <laughs> yep. Could that be wrong? What happens when a lot of people gather in a short amount of time and there's no order to the mission? 
What would have happened if they did that right? <laughs> Here's what they're doing. They're going to gather around that thing, and all at once they're going to grab a piece. If you play the game of Jenga, it's one person at a time, very carefully sliding something out, trying not to knock it down, right? What would happen if you play Jenga with eight or nine people? They all go for it at once, go, I can do this better, get out of my way, and they all grab it. Well, the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. There's got to be an order to it. Did you get that from that? Because I just helped you get that one a little bit. Wow. All right, so sometimes too many people too fast if it's not, if they don't know the vision, it's not helping orderly. What's next? What else is Nehemiah dealing with? Well, too dry of a season. Too dry of a season. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Some of your Bibles say because of the drought. So the second reason for a shortage of food was that there had been a long season of actual drought here. So there's not that many crops, so the crops are expensive. In other words, there's a, there's a desert experience going on here. Question, what potential harm can come to a life that's brittle and dry? What potential harm can come to a life that's brittle and dry in the Lord? Well, I'll show you because I like to play Jenga. I love Jenga. I didn't know it was supposed to burn. Who brought this Jenga set? <laughs> What happens if spiritually you're going through the motions and you're doing ministry and you're doing all kinds of work but you're not doing anything spending time with Him? And you'll burn out for God. And it's kind of tied to the next thing. But they're different. The third one is too much work. Too much work. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax. Oh, microphone. <laughs> How long have I been going like that? I'm having fun. Doesn't matter if you. <laughs> those, that part of the sermon's going to kind of be missing, huh? And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. The third reason for a shortage of food was that, was might have been that the people were so intensely focused on the ministry, they lost sight of their day jobs. What were there? It was almost all agriculture back then. They worked in vineyards. They worked in the fields. And guess what? They were so happy about getting the wall rebuilt that some of them, well, there's a drought anyway, and so it's really not going that good. Or maybe we'll pool our food together. Some people have a lot of crops. The rich royalty has a lot of crops. So maybe we'll all share. We can't really work out there, Nehemiah, and work on the wall at the same time. So since that's not really working out, let's just do this. Let's just bury ourselves in ministry. You ever felt that way? Well, let me promise you, in a church launch, in a church that's just starting off, it can get that way. Sometimes people can feel like they're wearing all kinds of hats. Sometimes people can feel like they're, they're, they're doing 20 different ministries. We teach worship plus two here. You know what that means? That means when, we, when the doors are open of this church, gym slash sanctinasium, for God, we're here worshiping. And the plus two means that you're involved in a life group, just one, 
either teaching it or, or in it, and one ministry. Find that that's very, very healthy to grow. Give it all you got in that one ministry. Give it all you got in that one life group. But what happens when you're in five ministries? What happens when you feel like you're doing all the work? You get pretty frustrated. What happens when you feel like you're the one wearing 20 hats and nobody else is doing what they're supposed to do? That also can bring the wall down, right? I tell you, I like playing Jenga. Ever tell you that? Well, so far, I haven't played it right yet. And you're looking at these things and go, these things seem a little nebulous. They're really not. They're common things that Satan uses to bring down the temple in the Old Testament, to tear apart believers in the Old Testament, to tear apart churches in the New Testament, and still today. Verse 5, now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to do anything about it. For other men, in other words, other brothers and sisters, have our fields and our vineyards. Too many people, too long a dry season, too much ministry work. There it is. All three scenarios are present, and it leads the people to a dangerous, discouraging, depressing place, or it can. Now, it's an ancient pattern, a common biblical scenario. Let me show you at least one example. I'll probably give you a couple here. The people are finally freed from Egypt. How many of you have seen the cartoon, uh, you know, what's that one, the Egypt cartoon? Okay, you haven't seen it. How many of you have seen Charlton Heston then in the cheesy old Ten Commandments thing? Okay, you got that scenario. The people are, are slaves for 400 years. There's a lot of them. They grow, they multiply. Hundreds of thousands of Jews there, but they're in slavery and they cry out to God for years, hundreds of years. Seems like God doesn't do anything about it, but he finally does. Through Moses, he frees them, and they're going to go to a promised land now. No more slavery, and so would you say they're pumped? After everything that's happened, incredibly pumped. They're excited. So the movement, one of the greatest movements of all time, is underway. But they don't get very far from Egypt before everybody starts noticing how large the group is. You know how large it was? See, when they're all dispersed throughout Egypt and the whole region, they're working on projects, I guess nobody really noticed. But as it turns out, when they're all a mob going through the desert, you look around and you realize there's about two million of them. Two million of them. So you look around and all of a sudden they start going, when do we get to the promised land, Moses? How far is it? And they start panicking. Too many people it seems. Too much of a population explosion all at once. People on their way to the promised land, first they have to travel through what? A desert, a dry place, a wilderness experience. What do you think often happens in a desert? You're hungry. You're hungry spiritually, physically. So the little recipe is in one of the most common stories that you all know that you've heard your whole life. There's the same recipe for inward opposition. Well, was there any? Yeah, if you were to turn to Exodus 16, 1 through 3, and I'll go ahead and read that for you. You don't have to turn there. It says, they, the Jews, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. What an ironic name of that wilderness. The wilderness of sin. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, okay, it's only been a month and a half. It hasn't been that long, but it feels like. But they've been in the desert experience for a month and a half. Since they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Wow. What, you want, you want to go back to Egypt now? 
When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, is that what it was like in Egypt? I don't think so. For you brought us out into the wilderness, into the desert, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, it's a foolish thing to say. God has said, I brought you through. The, we're going to go through this desert. It's a valley for now. But I want you to focus on what's on the other side. Only none of them do. Why? Because they're in the desert. And when you're in the desert, it's hard to focus on God and the promised land, isn't it? There's all kinds of examples like this. How about when the disciples were in the boat and there was a storm and they're panicked and they see a ghost walking on the water? Remember that? And it's not a ghost, is it? It's Jesus, and he comes walking up to them. This happens every day. Try to hang with me. And they're panicking, but Peter, who gets a bum rap all the time, he's not panicking. In fact, I think he gets way too much of a bum rap because he's the gutsy one. He's the one with courage here. And he says, Lord, if that's you, tell me to get out of the boat. Just say it. Why? Because he wants to get out of the boat. He wants to do what Jesus is doing. That's incredible. And he did. He got out of the boat. So how could those other disciples rag on Peter all the time? I don't see them getting out of the boat. That's a whole other sermon. He gets out of the boat. He's walking to Jesus. They're both doing this now. He's walking on water. But what happens to Peter? I mean, you look at Jesus, and he's walking. And he's like, this is, this is pretty cool. I can see him real shaky at first. And then he's probably doing the moonwalk, and he's, he's getting pretty cocky walking around. And then there's still a storm. The Bible never says a storm let up there. In fact, it, it didn't let up. And so as he's walking to Jesus, and he gets far enough away from the boat, he looks around, and there's huge waves on the Sea of Galilee. Pretty soon, the waves become the focus, right? Jesus is right there. He's still standing as though it's solid ground. So is Peter, but he looks at the waves, and incredible fear comes over him. They become the focus. Jesus is nothing anymore, and he sinks. That's what happens. What becomes the focus for the Jews in the wilderness? The rocks and the desert, that's it. And they can't see God anymore. All they can see is rocks and desert. And they say we're hungry. And they're looking around going, I don't see food. I don't see a Chick-fil-A. I see nothing. So I think God's maybe abandoned us. Meanwhile, all Moses seems to be interested in is that they see the vision of the promised land and that they keep the law and stay on vision. God called him to go to the top of the Mount Sinai. And, and what a privilege and honor. He said, Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you the law. All right, so he's going to go up there, and physically God's going to write on stone tablets the Ten Commandments, and Moses feels so honored. It's a long climb, and God wants to spend time with his servants, so Moses is gone for a while. But here's what Moses understood. He understood what Jesus said later in the New Testament. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Moses got it. The word is more important than even food. The Lord will sustain. He'll feed me, but I've got to feed myself first i got to feed myself first. So he's thrilled about the honor of receiving the Ten Commandments on stone. So he heads on up the mountain, and he's gone for over a month. So the people's dry spell, what I say, it's been about a month and a half. It's been out a little bit longer now. And their wilderness furlough just got a 30-day extension, right? So now they're looking around and going, God's deserted us. God doesn't care. The focus is the desert. I'm going to see, I'm going to tell you where they go in a moment with that. But first I have a question. Are these desert experiences rare or common in the life of a believer? I, I think they're more common than anything. And I don't particularly like them. In fact, gang, usually I, I hate them. I love mountaintop experiences with the Lord. I love when the Holy Spirit is there and it's powerful and you feel like you're unstoppable right in His will. Desert experiences feel different, don't they? But God's no further away in the desert, is he? God was no further away from Peter out there on the stormy sea than he was 
before Peter saw the waves. He's still right there, right? It's just the focus. So they're common. And they're also life-changing. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. David writes about his, King David writes about his desert experiences in at least five psalms. Psalm 17, 35, 54, 63. Well, actually, many psalms. They're all over the Bible. So watch this. If you haven't had a desert experience with God, yet you will. It's coming. And I doubt there's anybody sitting in here unless you're two years old who hasn't had some. It's coming. It's coming. You're going to have it. But here's the good news. And you don't have to lift your hands. I just want you to think about it. How many of you are in one now? Some of you I know are in one now. The good news is there's a purpose for that desert experience, and it's not going to keep laughing. It's going to end. It's going to end. So what do you suppose that purpose is? For you to be more like Christ. He's going to stretch you, and he's going to grow you, and gang, that can only happen in the desert. I don't think I've ever met a believer who grew when everything was hunky-dory, who grew when they were prosperous, there wasn't a care in the world, they're completely healthy, and everything's absolutely great. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have times like that for us. He does. Times of blessing, but you usually don't stretch and grow and experience pain when everything's great. The growth happens in the desert experiences. If you haven't had one, you're going to. Probably lots of them. Why? Because they are a test of our faith. Endure the desert experience, and guess what? Your faith will grow. Your faith will absolutely grow. Fail, and you'll either walk away from God altogether, or guess what? You'll spend more time in the desert. You know who didn't get that? The Jews absolutely did not get this. So they have a few months of a desert experience. I'm going to tell you in a moment just a little bit more of what happened there. But they kept failing these desert tests that lasted months that what finally happened? God said, you're going to spend 40 years in the desert until this failing generation that will not look at me is completely killed off. And I'll start with the next generation. I promise you, gang, you don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. So, which way did the Israelites go when Moses went up to get the law? They went bad. They decided after about three weeks that God had ditched them. So they ditched God. Not the idea of God altogether. They decided they could make a better God. You know the story. So they took their earrings and their jewelry and all the gold they could find, and they melted it down and made a golden calf and said, that's God. Our God's dead. Our God's gone. Moses will never come back. So we're going to worship a God made in our image instead of the God who made them in his image. Foolish. Dumb. I don't know. Sometimes we read the Bible. We look at the Old Testament. We read stuff like that and go, what's wrong with those people? Who would worship, you know, metal heated up and formed into an object? Who would do that? I don't know. We do that. I mean, anybody have a car they like, guys? Love, maybe feel too strongly about it? Or a house? I mean, we fashion things, and just because we don't bow down to them, I don't know, maybe some of you do. I don't want to see it if you do. But just because we don't act quite like that, we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. If we spend all of our money on that, spend all of our time with that, you know, maybe some people have a boat every single week and they're gone. They can't worship in God's house. It's not wrong to have a boat. It's wrong to worship the boat. So we're really not that different than them. So the Jews got tired of waiting. Every day for a few weeks they did their chores and went through the motions of worship, but their hearts were no longer in it. The daily work burned them out. They made a new God and gave up on God altogether. And what happened when Moses came back down? 
and saw what they were doing, he got incredibly angry. And what did God do to the people who'd rebelled? He killed them. He killed them. Sometimes when, when God moves like this, we're looking and go, wow, that's extreme. But God will purify his church. God will save a remnant always. God will always purify his people and consecrate them, set them apart for his holy calling and purposes. Listen, he will either purge, here's what I've seen over and over again, he'll either purge out the enemy from among his people as he did here in uh, Exodus, or he'll call the remnant out of the bad situation as he did when he led his people out of Egypt. It's one or the other, always. But he will not allow a rotted remnant among the holy remnant to just work together and fester. Sooner or later, he's going to purify his people. And sometimes it hurts. This is a one-time thing? That's a cute story, Pastor. I bet there's not. Well, there's a million of them in the Bible. You know where all three phases are there? Too many people, too long a dry season, too much work? No, here's another one real quick. When the Jews finally did cross over the promised land, 40 years wiped out a generation, you got the, or actually, no, this is before that, before the 40-year desert experience, what was the one deal-breaker thing that the Jews did where God said, that's it, this generation's got to go? What was the sin? Time's up. Here's the sin. They're going to the promised land. It's over. They've been through the desert. It, it's finally over. Here we go. Listen, before we go, let's send out some spies. Let's just check it out a little bit. Not that we have to. So what's God doing? He's trying to say, will you trust me? Because what I'm going to show you when the spies go out is a really scary scenario. I just want to know if you'll keep your eyes on the waves and the storm and the giants and the scary scenario, or if you might just for once say God's bigger than that. And God already knew. It was disappointing, wasn't it? Sent the spies out, and 10 of them said, there's giants. They're bigger than we are. There are many. We can't win. God brought us out here to kill us. He's a cruel God. Two of the spies were good, but that was it. And they went to a vote on the people, and the, all the people wanted to follow the 10 spies. To what, by the way? Uh, I guess go back to Egypt. <laughs> They're always going back to Egypt and remembering that it was better than it ever was. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to pull out a remnant. It's going to be your kids. I can't use you all. Any, he didn't say you all. I don't think God's Southern. But he said, I, I can't use you anymore. I can't use you anymore. We're done. That's a scary thing, isn't it? We're done. But your children are going to experience the miracles and the blessing that you just wouldn't trust me or believe me for. And right here in chapter 5, we're dealing with the three phases again. It's here with Nehemiah. The people gathered for the rebuilding of the wall. Too many people. There's a drought, a dry place, desert experience that leads to wondering where God is in their lives. They're hungry. People have been working hard at the ministry of rebuilding the wall day and night, and now they wonder where God is in their lives. And so Nehemiah is confronted with the biggest test of his leadership and vision uh, to date for rebuilding the wall. You see, the population increase, a dry season and the work of ministry caused the people to buy corn at incredibly unfair high prices, so exorbitant prices that they were forced to mortgage their homes and their vineyards and sell their children into slavery. So the once-fired-up wall-building team is at a halfway point, and we're beginning to see who among the people views the cup as half full and who among the people views the cup as half empty. I mean, I don't think Nehemiah saw this, but God is going to weed them out. He's going to purge them out. Even in a wall-building project, he's going to have a remnant that trusts him and move forward with those people. The good news here is everybody gets to move forward because of one key thing, and I'll tell you what it is, but we're going to talk about it next week. 
It's one of the most powerful things you can do as a believer if you want God to be, use you in a big, mighty way. It's the R word. It's treated like a cuss word today. It's like a four-letter word. You know what it is? Do you? Repent. You don't like that word, do you? I don't like it that much. But it's powerful. And brokenness leads to repentance. And because, and we'll see this next week, because the, the people that are confronted with their sin here decide to repent instead of keeping on, everybody is saved to finish the project. But at this point, the halfway point, their pessimism spreads and will keep on spreading unless Nehemiah can help deal with it and do something about it. Pastor, you know what? I kind of went long today, and this is a great story, but what's the takeaway for me? Well, here it is. I doubt there's anybody here who has never felt depressed, stressed, and malnourished spiritually. I, I, I guarantee if you're an adult, you've had it. One of them, two of them, or all three. Maybe it's due to a population explosion, so let's relate it to this. The Lord adds to our church so fast, new people arrive on the scene, and pretty soon we no longer get the attention we once did. Ouch. Whatever happened to just 60 of us meeting in the neighborhood clubhouse, Pastor Rob? I like those days. Those days are gone. We lament. Or maybe there are some of you that in the dry season, uh, I've been talking about, you're in that. Not every moment of the Christian life gain can be a high mountaintop spiritual high experience. It can't. I mean, when you go from one mountaintop to another mountaintop, what's in between the two mountaintops? Valleys. If you want to keep on going to higher and higher spiritual experiences and becoming more like Christ, in between those are valleys. That's where you grow and get strong enough to take on a bigger mountain. That's just how it works. Really pretty simple. Don't know why we don't get it. Some of you may be in that right now. Remember, it's the droughts where God stretches us and develops our faith instead of you relying on your feelings because it's faith that remains solid when life is like a roller coaster. So God's got to develop that. Remember what it says in Hebrews 11, I believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Or maybe our times of stress and spiritual hunger are actually due to the fact that we're so busy ministering. I've had this in my life. Teaching the kids, counseling the middle schoolers, singing in the praise band, building the sets, setting up, tearing down. There's a lot of work to be done when you're a, a, a church launch. Working security, helping park cars, greeting hundreds of guests. All extremely important parts. I mean, they have to happen. You got to do it. Unless that's all we're doing in the feeding of our own souls. And you're not feeding yourself through time in the Word and a vibrant prayer life. You know, people ask me all the time, I go, man, it must be nice to be a pastor because you get so much time in God's Word and you get to every day is like a quiet time. Again, preparing for a sermon and my time with the Lord are not the same thing. In fact, that's a huge mistake. Because I could be studying for 20 or 30 hours a week to get ready for a sermon, and a lot of times God shows up throughout that whole thing, and it's great. But if I'm not intentional to just worship Him and pray so that He will meet me there, it's different than just studying God's Word. I could get caught up in ministry, and I could, I could initiate myself into my own desert experience by my own doing. Well, gang, that's all the time we have. Some of you are saying that's more than all the time we have. That's really all the time we have. As I said, this chapter is a two-parter, but for today, let me give you one thing you can do to avoid this inward-focused enemy within, you know, breakdown. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself before God. Rededicate yourself to Him daily. Do you know what consecrate means? Anybody here know what it means? 
I love that word. I mean, it sounds all churchy and religious, but you know what it really just means? Separate yourself. Separate your heart. Separate yourself for his kingdom work and his purposes to do. Because see, if you don't separate yourself, then God's going to find a way to separate you unto his work. You can't have it both ways. Here's what's really good. In a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that as we celebrate communion together. Gang, that's what communion's for. You ever think of it that way? Communion is a time to, to get yourself right with God, to seek the Holy Spirit if there's any sin in your life, to confess it, get it right, and to let God consecrate you and set you apart for ministry. We've got a lot of ministry to do in Impact Church. And so some of you have been going, hey, Pastor, I don't know if you've really caught on. We're in week seven. I think we've done six communions. Were you aware? Yes. This will be seven. And we're going to keep right on going. It's a powerful part of us joining together and separating this whole church to do strong and powerful things for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I love this group. God, as I look around and I see the people that are beginning to gather at Impact Church, Lord, I know that you're doing a mighty work, God, and I know that you are separating us out. And you are consecrating your people, getting ready to be more than just a church. God, we're aware Charlotte and the surrounding area has nearly a 1,000 churches. There should be a greater impact. Father, we want to be more than a church, Lord. We want to be a movement for you. God, we want to see you do great things. God, we want to walk on water, Lord, but we know that it's our tendency to look around at the waves and the opposition and to work hard and sometimes push you aside, Lord, and fall into the three-phase trap, God. Father, you are taking care of outside opposition, Lord, and now I pray that we would not fall to inside opposition. God, I pray that we would love others greater than ourselves. It's the great commandment and the great commission, Lord. And the great commandment, Lord, you said that we are to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, God. And all these things will fall into place. And to love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. And God, the reason we know that those are the most important commandments is that everything else we do in life will take care of itself if we really love you and others that way. So God, make us an outward-focused church, Lord. God, we submit ourselves to you just like we dedicated our children. Lord, we dedicate all of our lives before your throne. Do what you will with this church, Lord. Magnify your name through this church. Father, week seven, Lord, of your church being birthed and formed and put together, God. My prayer is that nobody would be left out, Lord. And Father, we would never be a church where even, even some people are just fans in the stands and kind of waving their flags and cheering on the others. Lord, I pray that this launch team especially, Lord, would be all on the field, giving everything they've got for you, Lord, centering their lives around you in the game, knowing that this life is just a dress rehearsal for all of eternity. <clears throat> There's time enough to rest and to rejoice in everything fully all the time when we're with you and we see you face to face. God, we believe you're going to and already have done great and mighty things through Impact Church. This church is yours, Lord, and we await your commands and your will and your vision. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. We will see you next week.